Dear listeners, we've got a special episode for you recorded live at the comedy festival SF Sketchfest, where Sarah Marshall of You're Wrong About told me all about the urban legend of alligators in the sewers of New York. But of course, that is only a fraction of the strange things we actually talked about. So please enjoy this live episode where I tried to be as funny as possible so I could feel qualified to be a part of a comedy festival. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and your co-host will be Sarah Marshall. And this is an American Hysteria You're Wrong About mashup. Welcome to You're Wrong About. <laughs> and with me today is Kelsey Weber-Smith. Hey, everybody. So happy to be here. Go Packers. <laughs> so, Sarah, we're going to be talking about urban legends today, which we're really excited about. Yeah. I know that this is one of your favorite topics, your most favorite topic. Maybe. Probably my favorite thing in the entire world is uh, reading, talking, writing, researching urban legends. So I feel that I'm bringing a certain folkloric tradition to all of you tonight, and I'm honored. So thank you for having me, Sarah. (laughs) And hello to all of you, and thank you so much for coming. We're living in a time of really catastrophic weather events pretty continually, and it's so hard to fit in the arts when that's happening. (laughs) And yet you did it. And so, yeah, I I chose Alligators in the Sewers specifically because it feels like, to me, the maybe the iconic gold star, older than old, so kind of cheesy that you're kind of like, everybody knows that one's fake one, right? Is that what it is to you? What I'm so excited about is that this is a, like, very big dark spot in my urban legend education. I do not really know much about alligators in the sewers, except that it's in the Big Apple, NYC. Yeah, that one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The biggest. Whereas, okay, and the city is what? The Little Pear? That's nice. I think that's really nice. You don't want to put on ears. So we're going to, we're going to get into some media history, which is this fucking guy. Who's a fan of the masterpiece Candyman? Yeah. Don't say it five times, or do, if you're into that kind of thing. <laughs> Kelsey, are you a Candyman fan? Am I a Candyman? The yeah. Candyman can. Are you, yeah. Um, are you I am definitely guy? a Candyman fan, absolutely. I feel like that was a really great movie that kind of got people familiar with urban legends a little bit, because we've got like a little bit of a razor blade in the candy, mm-hmm. Halloween candy, which is a very classic urban legend. It has never happened. <laughs> <laughs> I have not seen the new one. Neither have I. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't do reboots. If we watched all the reboots of the things we originally liked, we would just grow old while lying in our beds like the girl at the start of The Haunting. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I tend to say my favorite urban legends movie is 1998's urban legend Mm -hmm. does anyone remember this classic slasher okay just soaking in this horror movie fandom it just feels good on my pores the best skincare there is what is your so so 
I would love to hear yourself for this movie because I, for people who don't sit around thinking about this kind of thing, slashers were a huge wave in horror movies in the 70s through the 80s and they got kind of tired out as a formula. We put it in a drawer and then starting with Scream, is that correct? I would in say 96? so. Yeah. Self-aware horror started. Yeah, and Meta. the slasher comes back. Yeah, absolutely. And Urban Legend came after Scream after I know you did last summer and it was a movie that took all of these classic urban legends that we grew up hearing and kind of created a serial killer that was recreating those urban legends which is a perfect premise for a film and also so, <laughs> so much hard work to go into recreate you have to and there's like the story about they did the madman in the back seat to mm -hmm. start do you want to tell that one does anyone know that story that we're talking about? The killer in the back seat. Okay. Got it. Bigger applause for the killer in the back seat than these two fine films. <laughs> I, I like I yeah. like that. No, yeah. Um, yeah. So the killer in the back seat legend is there are many variations depending on time and place, but the basic story is that, or let's say my favorite telling of the story is that. A woman is driving, of course, a woman is driving home. Because and women shouldn't drive. <laughs> no. <laughs> women shouldn't drive. They shouldn't go home. Mm -hmm. um, they should already be there. <laughs> and you can't hang out in a mall parking lot either because God knows that's how you get trafficked. That's how you get your ankles slashed yes. from under the car. By that kid from Pet Another. Cemetery. Yeah. He's a trafficker mm -hmm. now. Oh. I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> but I guess imagine, huh. you know, I guess a Stephen King toddler. They got one in every trafficking <laughs> ring that I hear about on TikTok. Definitely. <laughs> okay. So the killer in the backseat is a story where a woman is driving home and there is a, tr usually a giant truck. We've all been there. We know what that's like, tailgating her. And every you know, minute or so, this truck turns on its high beams really bright and it's freaking her out. She's driving home, she's taking the main road, then she's like, I gotta lose this guy, so I'm gonna take a way home I don't usually take, I'm gonna go through some neighborhoods. Still, this big ass truck is just, you know, turning on its high beams and just scaring the shit out of this woman. So she gets home, she pulls into her driveway, the truck pulls in behind her, she gets out and starts, you know, running and screaming into her house, and the man gets out and he's like, no, 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 I was only turning on my high beams and following you because every time I stopped doing that, a man rose up with an ax in the back seat, and so he'd flood it with light and he'd get scared and he'd go down. Because <laughs> ax murderers can't stand headlights. No, <laughs> no, they cannot. So that's a uh, kind of your basic, your basic urban legend. And a lot of times urban legends are like warnings, like kind of this, the way that fairy tales are like, they're kind of the classic stay out of the woods. And in this case, like you said, women don't drive. Mm -hmm. And you can see who's interested in it maybe in telling that story. And to me, what's so great about urban legends is that you aren't saying that there is a conscious desire shaping these stories and shaping these narratives. What I love about them is that they are, you know, I guess like mythology has always been a way of understanding the secret fears and desires of a society. Definitely. And the, I think one of the most fun things about urban legends is that they are teenage conspiracy theories, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and so a lot of these stories will first 
travel through high schools, elementary schools. I'm sure that you all remember some form of them. One of the best ones out there is little Mikey from the Life Cereal commercials dying from eating Pop Rocks and drinking Coke. His stomach <laughs> explodes. Um, but I think what's so interesting about that story, and, and actually a lot more urban legends than you'd think, is that it has this actual material effect on the world in that Pop Rocks, the company went out of business because of those rumors and people were calling up little Mikey's mom. The Coke was untouched. Yeah. <laughs> And poor little Mikey's mother was getting calls every day being like, I'm sorry, your son's stomach exploded. <laughs> and they had to take all the pop rocks and bury them in the desert. So there are like thousands of pounds of pop rocks buried somewhere in the desert. And then what if, oh my God, what about when if the, the rains continue in an environment not designed for them and erode the land until they unearth the giant pop rock cache? And then someone really will explode. <laughs> but that's, that's what's going to destroy Vegas, probably. Oh, yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that or the locusts. <laughs> Why yeah. not both? Why not both? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I love the classic urban legends because they also feel so remote from our daily fears and our daily legends that they're actually fun to analyze. And would you classify QAnon-type stuff as a form of urban legend? How does the urban legend conspiracy theory to mass shooter spectrum work? Man, <laughs> I don't know if I'm qualified. Um, you, you can do it, Kelsey. You have a, an MFA in poetry. <laughs> yeah, I guess I do. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. Yeah, it's a question I think about a lot. It keeps me up at night. I tend to think of urban legends as not having as serious of an impact. Like, sure, Pop Rocks went out of business. <laughs> I don't know. QAnon, I'm okay with know. it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's not the same type of uh, concern. But I think urban legends, like, it's hard because right now our show, you're going to get a little inside look. I do a show called American Hysteria. We cover lots of different things. Thank you, it's very nice. Um, and we're working on a series about gang initiations. And I don't know if you all remember the story, like if you flashed your headlights at a car whose lights were off in the 90s, they'd turn around and kill you and it was a gang initiation, right? Which is, but you know, that story, even though that one's like so silly, there are so many variations of it and that had like material effect on laws because gang we had such a gang moral panic, which again is kind of the other side of a conspiracy theory. Um, so I, I, it's kind of like a hard one to suss out because it's not like only for adults because adults fall for urban legends. But I think that there's not as like hard of a moral component. But I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we'll figure it out tonight. Yeah, I feel like we're teaching it the a really big class. <laughs> well, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, think, I mean, as you're talking about it, that makes me think about how, you know, I think the thing about QAnon is that it's so much about a specific belief system and agenda, right? Like using extremely violent rhetoric to the point where any violence it inspires is not a surprise and clearly the point, and yet you can still believe you have the free speech defense, I guess. Oh, here's a minute you're wrong about. You know the metaphor about shouting fire in a crowded theater? Bad place to talk about it. But, 
that one actually refers to a specific case in which a meeting of a union for coal miners in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan were having a meeting to discuss their union activities. And there is a very persuasive theory that a scab or someone working for the company shouted fire and then caused a situation because the door, I believe at the bottom of the stairs in that building opened in instead of out that caused a lot of people to be trampled to death when there were, was no fire. So again, it was capitalism <laughs> all along. <laughs> when you're saying that, it's making me think that urban legends, generally speaking, I think don't have an agenda. They're just stories that people want to retell because they're so sensational. And I think people genuinely believe them, whereas I think bad actors use moral panics and conspiracy theories to get some sort of, you know, agenda passed, legislation passed, mm -hmm. or to demonize a group that they then want to do some kind of harm toward or yeah. have them lose some kind of right. Yeah. And a great example of that is maybe the distance between the satanic panic, where we have allegations that Satanists are getting jobs in daycare centers so they can torture children. At, at a very low wage. Um, <laughs> and this leads to the actual prosecution of some actual people, many of them working class or queer. And it's really only when, in my understanding of it, because this is such an interesting phenomenon to analyze, it's like being an oceanologist. Like we both study it, but that doesn't mean we should agree about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of my thoughts about why it, you know, and it never really ended, right? Look at the worlds we're living in now. But that era of it ended. The satanic panic is like Taylor Swift. There's different aesthetics, but it's, it's always with us. As a paragon of excellence. No, it's too far. Um, and now Taylor Swift is part of QAnon stuff because she dared to watch a football game. So, you know. The great thing about Taylor Swift is that she's the subject of right-wing conspiracy theories and gay conspiracy theories. She is. That's, yeah. <laughs> Who says it's a to... conspiracy? <laughs> you know? She's not gay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, the, but, but the desire to believe in the gayness of Taylor Swift reveals something quite charming just about call us, me perhaps. molder yeah <laughs> i want to but leave but, yep. but right so that we have you know this world where things sort of like pennywise themselves take a little nap from time to time but then come back and eat more children um and that the satanic panic it seems like kind of became so much less of a force within mainstream psychiatry and law when civil lawsuits started coming for upper middle class people who could actually mm. fight back and introduce legislation. Mm. Yeah. And a ton of other things. But so you can compare the satanic panic, which had real outcomes for specific people and which involved, you know, a, I think if you look at something that starts in the early 80s, after we can see very clearly a backlash against liberalizing political and social forces that include women's lib and gay liberation in the 70s, then you can also, it's not too far to say that without people believing themselves to be conspiring about this openly, that there was a need to punish women for going back into the workforce and putting their children in daycare. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and also gay people for existing and wanting to work with or even look at a child. And man, you know, it's like one of those things where it's like there are people using these actively, like these stories, like, you know, satanic ritual abuse. But there's so there are people who use it. And then I think there are people who genuinely believe it. And I think what's really interesting is looking at the underlying anxieties of a culture. Sarah mentioned like women's rights, gay rights, you know, these big changes that kind of shook up the middle upper class, like white paradigm, white male paradigm, right? And so I think sometimes these anxieties, though we aren't expressing them explicitly, they kind of come up in our myths and our stories and our folklore just the way that you're afraid of the monster in the woods. So I think that the fact that we had these satanic cults, we had these satanic cults, um, you know, it did, as Sarah said, it spoke to like the anxiety around women placing children into daycares and it was women's fault for not being in the home, not watching over their children, that like the worst possible thing you could ever dream of is what was happening as a result of that. So it's like these stories are really important because they teach us a lot about what's happening in a culture when things are changing. And that's important. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And it's it's just so much useful data. And then you can compare that to kind of a classic urban legend, which is the babysitter who, you know, the parents call her and they're like, how are things going? How are the kids? And she's like, great. The turkey's cooking perfectly. It's going to be very moist. And then the mom's like, we didn't have a turkey in the refrigerator because she's cooked the baby. Because she was on drugs. She's blasted on LSD. <laughs> yeah. And here's where I ask you, when have you ever, under the influence of psychedelics or any drug, aside from speed, I guess, wanted to roast a turkey <laughs> or be around a baby <laughs> that's just a scary thing to do when you're on lsd Ooh, yeah yeah i love the idea that these babysitters wait until they have to take care of small children and they're like now now's the time <laughs> put it on my tongue boyfriend i snuck in the back door mm -hmm. yeah and so that's a, a story that you know, I'm sure that people believed, some people believed that this was really happening. And, but it also feels like a function of the urban legend is to exist sort of in a gray area between fact and fiction. Where like, you don't have to know who specifically it happened to. You don't have to like get into the details. You just, it gives you a thrill. And so you choose to let it into your brain. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And uh, the other thing I like about urban legends is that the way that they're transmitted, you can kind of map through history as well. Like it started just word of mouth, then you get the telephone. So then you have word of mouth and then you have someone being like, I'm gonna call my cousin across the country and tell him this story. So then the story crops up there and spreads that way. And then eventually we get faxes. There was a thing that is known as fax lore, like for real, like it's it's very cool because that used to be in the 90s and, and 80s, like how these urban legends spread is like a concerned mom would fax the school who would then fax, you know, the police who would then fax the fire department. And so then it would seem real because all of these people are faxing each other. Or a lot of times, a lot of times someone would just slap like the police seal on it to make it look real. Um, 
the question is why. I don't know. That's the question I still have is why do people start these fax chains and email chains and all of those things that you all probably remember from growing up. Oh, yeah. And now we have Facebook. And it's so interesting. Yeah. Oh, my God. And uh, yeah, and that you any technology available to us, we will use to share rumors. And that's kind of cute. I like it. I like that. And so your show, American Hysteria, which is indispensable listening, you know, there's a lot of urban legends woven through it. But you're doing something relatively new with your urban legend material. What's that yes. like? Yes. Um, so we are doing something called the Urban Legends Hotline. And I encourage everyone in this theater to contribute to it at AmericanHysteria.com. And we're having people call in with an urban legend they remember. Um, and that could be one that we all remember. It could be like a regional variety because there are different kinds. But oftentimes you find a regional variety is actually not that it's just cropped up everywhere with different names and different, you know, variations. But yeah, so we're just kind of taking uh, calls and and doing little investigations, big investigations, really. Um, I did at one point go out alone to a place where this alleged school bus full of children was killed and their ghosts push your car uphill. And... (laughs) It was very fun, and I was very alone in the middle of nowhere. Um, And it was very fun. You dust the back of your car with baby powder, and then after it pushes you uphill, which is an optical illusion, that's why it looks like you're going uphill, and then you're supposed to see little hands on the back of your car, which you do, but only because the oils in your hand stay like when you open your trunk so it's like fantastic right it's so much fun so i encourage everybody to to call in if you've got a burning urban legend for us please i really like how we agree generally in lore that there's nothing creepier than like children's handprints and that's also like the major motif of the playground at the pittsburgh zoo (laughs) and the big uh scene of blair witch project well yeah that's that really yeah, feels to like that the Pittsburgh Zoo can never be enjoyed after that movie, which is <laughs> certainly not its fault. And it's all you think about. It's the, all I'm thinking about at any time is the Blair Witch Project or the Pittsburgh Zoo. <laughs> and, and that's one of your favorite urban legend. That's an urban legend movie, right? Because you're going into the woods or I guess just a rural legend. <laughs> Well, the cool thing about the Blair Witch Project is that it's actually, they created a legend and they built it through their website. You know, when, if anyone remembers being certain, I don't know, we have lots of different ages. If anyone remembers the year 1999, um, you may remember that they pitched it as a real story. A lot of people were asking Jeeves what was going on that year. I miss him. And he never gave it away. He never no. gave it away. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they they not only made this movie that was, you know, found footage allegedly of these college students who went to make a documentary about a local legend, but they also made their whole website. They made a second documentary about the lore of the Blair Witch. It was like one of the most complete beautiful projects of art in all of history. And this is the one that was on the sci-fi channel. <laughs> yeah, right? well, I meant the Blair Witch as a universe. Right, right. New remakes, not, notwithstanding, but um, <laughs> and we've already made that clear. Um, no, but it really, 
I, I really love that movie too. And I remember seeing it for the first time when I was 15 and it, which was several years after it came out, but it had, it was this feeling of like going back into something that felt too impossibly scary to even look at directly as a kid and being scared absolutely rigid by it. And it still works for me. And I, and it became so big culturally, it was kind of like Titanic. And then there was a big wave of people making fun of it. And similarly with Titanic, I think because to an extent we were like, I don't like how well this works. And yeah. I have no mm -hmm. choice but to be emotionally affected by it the way that it wants. Yep, yep, I think that's true. I think that's a great comparison, those yeah. two movies actually. Well, they were like like moments. They like came with an entire culture around them and yeah. I love them both. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never frozen, ready to eat gourmet meals that are chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. And now, back to the show. There's just, yeah, there's a, a lot of fun stuff that maybe is better told through fiction than through fact. And so Candyman, to get back to it, this is, this is yeah, <laughs> we had a plan. Um, a candy plan. This is, this is Xander Berkeley <laughs> as our guys. main character's lame husband. A candy plan, I'm sorry. <laughs> Thanks. That was beautiful. <laughs> it was fine. It was perfect. <laughs> 
But we, so Candyman is about Virginia Madsen playing a very sexy anthropologist who is interviewing students about urban legends, which these are, studies like this have been done, you know, all across academia, because that's one of the best ways that you can, I'm sure as an academic track, what's happening in different locations, especially because you have students coming from different parts of the country or different socioeconomic strata. Um, less so now, maybe, but in the 90s college was slightly affordable. And so Virginia Madsen is married to this guy who is introduced to us when she shows up at his class. She's a grad student, he's a professor, oh no. And uh, he's giving his very 101 brand new freshman class the, the great expository lecture, which is a wonderful feature of movies when the movie is like, we have a lot of material to get through. What if we have a professor say it? It's so effective. Yeah. It's so effective. It works for me every time. <laughs> I, I know love people it. complain about it, but I think like hacky cliches are cliches because they work. Yeah, again, and they an, work. And an urban legend, that professor is Wes Craven. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Which is a delight. And so, yeah, we have Mr. Prof Professor Husband, who is, you know, survives way too much of this movie, frankly, giving his lecture about just Urban Legends 101, kind of what we got into uh, in the last few minutes, but much more condescending. And <laughs> Hopefully, his, yeah. And his iconic example, it's alligators in the sewers. It's our legends. Um, and I feel like that legend itself is deployed as an example of like something kind of silly, something kind of old-timey. And then, of course, the movie is about Candyman, who if you say his name in a mirror five times, he'll show up behind you and get you with his hook. And it's really one of the only horror movies of the 20th century to try to talk about race to any extent um, and about race in America, which is really, you know, something that's always there in horror, but as a subtext. What year did Candyman come out? Do you know? 92, I'm pretty 92. sure. 92. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So People Under the Stairs would be the other one yeah, I was thinking of, which, which is like a 91. Great film. Yeah. Which is a, uh, oh, I'm sorry. The professor is Robert Englund, who's directed by Wes Craven. Oh, yes. Yeah. Who mm -hmm. is, uh, I would, but I would watch Wes Craven in any movie as well. But yeah, Wes Craven directs The People Under the Stairs, which is about a white couple who are cast directly from uh, Twin Peaks because it's Ed and Nadine Hurley. And they are monsters who are, you know, ruling a diverse neighborhood. It's and like a mommy and daddy dearest. Yes. Yeah. And they're, they're a little bit Reagan coded. Oh yeah, they are. <laughs> oh, they so are. And I mean, and speaking of daycare panic, like one of the things that gets to be buried beneath all of these Satanists who we're supposed to be paying attention to the man behind the curtain, if you will, is Ronald Reagan, whose policies have slashed funding for childcare. Could there be a connection? No, it's the Satanists. <laughs> so we have our alligators in the sewers, and then I basically wanted to ask the question, surely this isn't real though, is it? No, it's real. Whoa. Whoa. Did you get this from newspapers.com? <laughs> <laughs> our favorite website. Yeah, this is a Brooklyn Eagle article. It's from 1937. And so the original alligator in the sewer story occurs in 1935. And there is a distinction between the legend and the reality. And the legend is that, you know, and this gets quoted in Candyman, the alligators come from when people got baby alligators as gifts for their kids. 
Which is so Clarissa explains it all to me. <laughs> yeah, that show, what, what did the, that show was a negative influence on us, possibly. I don't know. She just had a little alligator in a little uh, kiddie pool full of sand. Yeah. I, yeah. I do. It, the, what a great, I love that it was just like, she had a guy friend who just climbed in through her window whenever he felt like it, and everyone was like, it's fine. And then, and then the guitar would play, like, <laughs> every time he came through the window. It the was theme cool. that says, boys are here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so that's, you know, that's how we picture alligators, right? They're cute when they're little. You can fit one in a cool girl's bedroom. But, <laughs> but then they get bigger. And, uh, and actually, this also shows up in Miami Vice, where Don Johnson's character, Sonny Crockett, lives on a boat with an alligator on it. It's not a very big boat. I don't know where he goes most of the time. He's just so tired because he can't sleep because there's a gator in his house. But so the legend that we hear quoted in Candyman is that people get baby gators, they get too big, they flush them, and then they live in the sewers where they turn albino from lack of sunlight and they're gigantic and there's tons of them down there and they formed a society. Wow. Wow. I love that. Well, you know, that's so, f- I don't, I've never heard the albino part of it, mm. or as I, sh- as we should say, an, al- <laughs> an alligator with albinism. Well. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, it's serious. There's an alligator in the back row who's like, thank you for seeing yeah. me, Kelsey. <laughs> um, <laughs> it only but- takes a moment. <laughs> um, but when I was living in Virginia, um, I used to go to this abandoned train tunnel that was really cool. And at the end of it, there was this like opening that you could crawl through. I tragically did not crawl through it, but legend had it that if you did, you would reach all of these animals like frogs and shit and like fish that had, you know, turned white from lack of sunlight. And I thought there was no way that was true. And I talked about this on some episode and someone got in touch and was like, it doesn't actually take very long for an animal to adapt and actually change color. I'm just trusting this person, <laughs> but you know, I because I thought it would take eons for a change to occur in a species. Well, I guess there's a difference. There's like a difference between sort of genetic evolution on the scale of like we have thumbs now, sure, uh, <laughs> and then something like uh, you know the famous example, which may be apocryphal because it's so famous, but I'm pretty sure it's true that in London, white moths were more common until the Industrial Revolution, when because everything was covered in soot dark colored moths had a better chance of survival because birds were less likely to see them and eat them wow so i didn't know that that, that's cool yeah Yeah. (laughs) we're like there's adaptation where you learn to blend in with your surroundings kind of through relatively few generations especially if you're a moth yeah you can get a lot done in a few years (laughs) sure (laughs) you have a lot to do I mean, but the real, the problem with the the gator myth or really the kind of endearing distance between the legend and the reality is that since the 1930s, we have, I say we, I've never been personally there, but people have been finding alligators in random places, including all corners of New York, but they're often like very sick, miserable alligators who are not long for this world. Um, And they are not famously built to live in a cold climate you know mm. they're from the south mm-hmm. they yeah. like reba mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um so okay so tell me more i gotta know more about these gators with albinism yeah and mm-hmm. so you know the reality today is that a lot of them are pets 
that uh, sometimes people call and surrender and they just are taken from an apartment. Or there was last year an alligator fished out of a pond in Prospect Park and who didn't live very long because they were like half the weight that they should be as an alligator. And these are like all pets, we're thinking. As far as we know. Because, I mean, how else would they get there? But then there's the, I mean, okay, so then you have your your New York feral alligators, and then you have the situation in the Everglades, right, where there are local gators, but then you have the ball python population, which are descended. And we learned about this on our educational swamp tour, that you've got invasive species, you know, that come from either people releasing something into the wild where it then actually is able to thrive or from something like Katrina, where mm-hmm. we learned about the snails. Oh, yeah. What was that? It's like pet snails that people have that because of Katrina oh, got yeah. like blown into the swamp and now are taking over and leaving these like toxic globs that look like bubble gum on everything. Isn't nature beautiful? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the pythons, too, I believe that they were in a lab and a hurricane exploded the lab and they just slithered right. into the, the woods yeah. and live there to this day. And panthers as well I'm are supposed to, yeah, the, panther the panthers, situation. there's supposed to be panthers out in the Everglades as well. But aren't they, do they just live there though? Are they from there? I'm no, I don't know. <laughs> there was a thing They're in Portland there, recently right? where they were like, there's a bobcat walking around there or no, they were like, there's a cougar walking around in a park and, and tigered, no pun intended. And it, it turned out to be a large house cat. So I don't know how that happened. <laughs> that is the definition of what happens on Nextdoor <laughs> website. <laughs> I was like, I'll go on Nextdoor recently because I was like, I, I want to see the neighborhood drama. Like, I want to see people fighting. Yeah. And I couldn't even bear it. It's I, so awful. I deleted it after about 15 minutes. Yeah. What? Yeah. Because yeah. do you find it really disheartening too when you realize that you've been sucked into an algorithm like everybody else? Because Nextdoor works where like, if you're really racist or kind of evil about unhoused people or something, then like the stuff that you find most upsetting will be shoved to the top. And if you're upset about your neighbors being really horrible, then you'll also be the most bothered by that content. So it's really a win-win for the website. (laughs) I don't think it brings communities together. (laughs) This is also like, you know, connected to the question of like, Things stay the same fundamentally for people, but what does change? And like a lot of things feel different from when I was growing up. And one of them is that I've been thinking about what I want to do in my garden this year, which I haven't been very ambitious with to this point. And like most of the people in my neighborhood, probably like every fifth house has some kind of a raised bed garden situation. And I was like, I should just, I want to like introduce myself to my neighbors and ask about their gardens. And I was like, I think it would be less scary to people if I went on the internet on like a Facebook group or next door and was like, hi, I am looking for tips about my garden. That's all. And then no one would see it because I wasn't saying anything scary. And that that would be less creepy to people than approaching someone that you don't know in person. Whereas 20 years ago, the idea of meeting anyone on the internet, we were like, you're going to get murdered. That's true. That's true. And now if you talk to a stranger who approaches you, we're like, you're going to get murdered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or you're like, I'm just not prepared. <laughs> you know, we didn't used to have, or we don't have to deal with that anymore, I guess. But then it's like anybody can text you at any time. And that yeah. is a Which is darkness. why we don't have energy for humans in front of us. Because yeah. anyone we know can 
ask us random questions all the time. And it can just pop up and just, just tell you that you're a bad person. That's the text well, I get. Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and you know what I was thinking about today is that like the best text you're ever going to get in your life and the worst text you're ever going to get both have the same alert sound. Wow. <laughs> so how are you not going to be feeling like mildly traumatized even when the text is like, Trader Joe's is out of that yogurt you like? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's gaslighting in a way. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's interesting that like, in a way it kind of doesn't matter what we fear as long as we have something to decide is safe and something to decide is unsafe. And it used to be the way people meet each other online and now it's, real life in a way that feels pretty weird. And yeah, the and the the situation with the gators is interesting because the myth of them turns them in, into a threat. And then, you know, the reality that you get down to underneath it is that we're the threat. Yeah, yeah. So were people scared of these gators? Well, the first gator story is an alligator being spotted in the sewer, like through a sewer grate by a group of youths. <laughs> In Brooklyn, mm. <laughs> in 1935. Let me read you the coverage of it. Famously, youths never lie. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great point. <laughs> but basically, they see him under there, and they drag him out together. They go through this great effort to pull him out, and then they kill him. I l <laughs> Thank you to the person who said, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, and so from the beginning, it's like these, these kind of random alligators who pop up from time to time. And another of the things that becomes apparent with this and with the kind of field of cryptozoology as well is that I think as a species, we are, unless we have some kind of specific training in it or happen to be good at it for some reason, we're very bad at estimating how big things are or the difference between something being big and something being close. <laughs> <laughs> It's so hard to tell with the perspective, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, just, and especially if you see something surprising, like an alligator that you are kind of conditioned to be afraid of, then, you know, there are stories, people also in the 30s, we start hearing about sewage workers reporting that they're seeing alligators down there occasionally, and no one believes this. But I have to assume that at least some of them were telling the truth. And if they weren't telling the truth, then it seemed a reasonable thing to encounter because of course if you work in the tunnels in New York you encounter all kinds of things. Well and I think even there's a middle ground between like a lie and it actually being a gator is like there's this thing that happens in our brains that is like linked to the time when we were actually prey mm -hmm. um, and yeah. you like look into the darkness and your brain if there's anything that even remotely looks like a face like your brain will see a face because it's better safe than sorry. Like it's better to, for your brain to yeah. make something up that is a threat because that's safer than mm -hmm. the alternative of like your brain just saying, I don't know, I don't think that's a face. And then Which you Which is why when we went to gator. a sushi restaurant today and they had a little face on the scary robot waiter, we were like, you're doing a great job. <laughs> it did work. It did work. <laughs> you're going to kill us all. <laughs> it's like, don't feel for it. That's how they're going to get us. <laughs> but yeah, and so, and what I want to propose is that, yeah, there are, there have been alligators in the sewers, but they're, they're kind of small. And they're kind of lonely. 
and they couldn't really do very much to you, probably. Like, I don't think there are many, very many healthy gators loose in New York. And so I guess, you know, the lesson here is that we need to save the gators. <laughs> this kind of reminds me of that episode of South Park <laughs> from mm. a long, long, long time ago, follow me. And there was like a ban on hunting in the town and everyone wanted to hunt. So they did this thing where they said every time they saw one of the animals they wanted to shoot, they'd say, oh, it's coming right for yes. me because they were allowed to shoot in self-defense and it'd be like a bunny. I remember impression in fifth grade. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it kind of is like, the gator's coming right for yes. me. And uh, I was like Jimbo and Ned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. There was a gator down there. He was coming right for me. And then while I was looking into the gator situation, situation while I was looking into the gator situation, I ended up starting to read this book on sand hogs. What's a sand hog? <laughs> Show of applause. Can't really see it, but who knows what a sand hog is? <gasps> cool. Okay, so I am the last person who's qualified because I am not myself a sand hog, but I read a book on a plane, so. But sand hog is a term like teamster. It refers to a bunch of different professions under a general umbrella, and in this case, it's people who dig the tunnels that uh, New York and other cities are made of. But I was reading about the New York Sandhogs, who have been through a lot. And Is that a baseball team? <laughs> should be. <laughs> and, uh, you know, for example, how, how do you build the Brooklyn Bridge if it's the 1870s? You know, or now, for that matter. But let's say it's the 1870s. How are you going to do that? Um, there are some bridges here. I saw one in George of the Jungle. And it's so fascinating to look at these fixtures of, you know, architecture and design and city building on a gigantic scale and think that people were building these things months before the invention of TikTok. <laughs> and so to build the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, to build the supports for the bridge itself, they did what any sensible person would do and constructed a wooden box the size of half a city block with walls 15 feet thick, sent it to the bottom of the river, and then sent guys down to work in it and bust up rocks on the riverbed and build a bridge. And they developed a condition, many of them called caissons disease because the structure they're in was called a caisson, which was the result of the previously unobserved effect of the pressure of working in a structure made of compressed air that many feet below the surface of the water. And so many of them were dying at a certain point that the company was planting their bodies in different places and lying to their families and saying they died of something else. Oh. And that's how you build a bridge. <laughs> Sandhogs, huh? Yeah, they sound so cute. Their story's so tragic, yeah. So those are the sand hogs. I know, they do sound so cute. They just sound like a, a lovely hog that burrows in the sand. Yeah. And, uh, but here, I, I'm going to read you something that I sent you without explanation yesterday. <laughs> While many sand hogs died building the subway tunnels, some survived against all odds. One almost unbelievable incident occurred in 1916 during the construction of the BMT under the East River. The screech of a bad blowout was heard in the tunnel. Before they could escape, three men were sucked through a widening hole and propelled through the river mud by escaping compressed air. One man, Marshall Maybe, 
which is what I should change my name to, <laughs> was shot through the 12 feet of riverbed, through the water of the East River, and into the afternoon sky on a geyser four stories high. He was retrieved by a contractor's boat, somewhat startled. <laughs> Only somewhat. <laughs> a day in the life of a sand hog. Marshall maybe went on to work in the tunnels for another quarter century and even had two sons who became sand hogs. Wow, wow. Well, I'm glad he lived, because I guess we need more sand hogs. I guess. Yeah, and there's... I, you know, to me, there's something resonant about the alligators in the sewers idea and the fact that some of the first people reporting these are sewer workers, you know, in these tunnels built underneath New York. And New York in specific being a city that is kept alive by, by subway tunnels, by sewers like everywhere else, by, you know, the tunnels that connect, that go under the river, the Holland Tunnel, things like that, and the, the vulnerability of living that way. And it feels like the idea of there being something scary down there. It's like, there is something scary down there. A lot of people have died in those things. And then their deaths were covered up by something scarier than a sick alligator. But it also feels like a function of urban legend that we have to make the alleged threat something other than it is so that we can feel a sense of control because we have something to avoid now. Per yeah, so well put. I completely, yeah, I completely agree with you. And it is, again, this like externalization of a massive anxiety of like, certain death and no support from your corporate overlords. So it's like a little bit easier to take that anxiety and project it onto a monster, right? It's like, we're scared of the woods. We're scared of the forest. We're scared of the great unknown of darkness because it means for a human being of a different time, many, many years ago that, you know, we might get eaten or attacked or whatever. And so it's like, if we can place all of that fear which is a big fear and an uncontrollable fear because we live in an unknowable universe, um, then you have this easy psychic like talisman almost that, that can hold all of that, that fear. And perhaps we're giving too much credit to the sewer gators in this moment, but perhaps not. I like them. Mm -hmm. And there's a... <laughs> <laughs> I like them. That's <laughs> so what, what you and Miranda said after you saw Don't Worry Darling. Yeah. <laughs> We just turned to each other and we said, I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I did. My favorite thing about that movie is Harry Styles trying to make mashed potatoes by banging a pot down on four <laughs> uncooked, unpeeled pota potatoes. I just couldn't believe we got to see incel Harry Styles. That was really special. Yeah, it that was, was really, a really special. weird thing to try to make happen. Yeah, it was, I don't know if it was a good movie, but... But it was, but it was it. a, but it was a movie. <laughs> We're not gonna let that one die. <laughs> I won't. love it. Nope. I know what he meant. I know we it really know. wasn't fair. It yeah. wasn't fair. Um, so we're here for the maligned. Um, <laughs> It'll be maligned men now. It was maligned women, uh, but we're gonna have to do the boys. We should soon. do a like April Fools episode for men or something. <laughs> You're wrong about men. You're wrong about men. <laughs> There's a lot of misconceptions about men. Well, it's true. There are. We do. Like, I'm sure that I really don't understand a lot of things about them that I need to learn. You know what? 
a lot of times, I like him. <laughs> I liked him. My dad's a man. <laughs> My brother's a man. Yeah. Yeah. More after this. And now, back to the show. I mean, actually, you know, the, the Sandhogs connect to all this because there is like the real fear that a lot of these, we have something, something in kind of urban legend and folklore called the subversion myth that the satanic panic is a perfect example of where you basically have to, and they show up especially in times of great social change, which at this point we are just going to keep having forever. So um, a story about an out-group plotting against the in-group, basically. So the Satanists are trying to infiltrate and take over America. And that it essentially serves to, among other things, validate the necessity of the current powers that be staying where they are. And, you know, my grand conspiracy theory that probably is one of my main takeaways of everything I've ever talked about on this show is that fundamentalist Christianity in America, especially the kind that has merged so successfully with the needs of the GOP. It's hard to associate that with Jesus at this point. It feels kind of libelous, but that's what we're calling it. And that, you know, that is a force within our culture that has openly plotted to infiltrate government and take over and see our country in specific directions and been very successful. And the world we live in, where we live in a, you know, essentially, <laughs> I'm not essentially truly a theocracy. Sure, there's always been Christianity sort of worked into the nap of American law and language, but really this, the world we're living in now began in the 70s with people like Pat Robertson, like people who are still alive or who very recently died. Did he die? Just now, just like great, minutes ago. <laughs> or, you know, a few months, but like, yes. Yeah, he was a real Keebler elf. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. You know, and that we have, and the, so the, the idea of the Satanist, the sometimes queer Satanist, the teenage outcast, you know, it, it, during the Satanic Panic, cops are going to training sessions that basically teach them to associate the behaviors of anyone they kind of want to arrest already with Satanism. So it's a really, that works well. And that that kind of mythology, the, subver the subversion myth, is so incredibly useful when we have a clear oppressor that we need to distract from, you know? And so the kind of mythology of American masculinity, like, they're fucked, you know? The economy's terrible. The thing that they were brought up being told they had to do is a terrible idea. And, you know, we've kind of trained them to feel awful about themselves, but that doesn't mean you get to hurt anybody. You just have to, we just have to, you know, this idea that you have to just keep naming external threats in order to keep doing the thing that is hurting yourself the most. That's one of the values we're kind of founded on. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think it, with this idea of the threat from the outside, that's actually like a force that has considerably less power. I mean, that comes up again and again and again. I think the gay agenda is a great um, example because we do have an agenda. Um, <laughs> don't let anyone tell you differently. But the agenda is not, you know, to groom children into becoming gay, you know, which was the same. We hear it today, obviously, and there was a big story in the 70s. But there was also this idea that there was this actually came out of um, communism and the fear of communism that that gay people were very implicated in because 
it was thought that if you were gay, you weren't necessarily a communist, but you could be blackmailed into doing communist work because you don't want people to know you were gay, right? Mm. So out of that, this group of gay men created kind of this art collective and kind of tongue in cheek made it, you know, about this panic and communism. But then they took, again, I think so much of moral panic comes from straight people not getting a gay person's joke. Um, <laughs> and that was one example. Um, and they kind of demonized these people and used it as proof that there was some kind of conspiracy because there's this like secret society of gay men that are planning something and communism. And another example is the, of course, everyone remembers gay Tinky Winky, right? <laughs> Remember when that was uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. No, senior, of course. And he heard or read in an article, a magazine article that a gay man, man had written about how Tinky Winky was this like queer icon essentially. Um, because, you know, it was like he was flouncing around carrying a purse. I mean, he, you know, it was a good call on this um, satirist's part, but you know, then that was taken as like, it's not just that I think as Jerry Falwell, that Tinky Winky is gay, this gay people are talking about it, you know, and it's this like subversion that is, you know, infiltrating our children's programming and gonna turn them all gay. And to be fair, my poor brother is going to be brought into this, but he carried around a purse because Tinky Winky did, and he's not gay. <laughs> but my stepdad didn't like it that much. But then he opened it up and there was a cool convertible inside. <laughs> Gender is a spectrum. <laughs> Shit. I mean, this is also why men in America are so unhappy. They don't have bags. Remember when Joey got that bag yes, on Friends? that was a whole episode. Yeah, I know. And he looked good with that bag. Oh, yeah. yeah. Joey Tribbiani would look good wearing pretty much anything. Yeah, and he does. Yeah. Hot man. Yeah. I also, there's no way to integrate this into our topic, but I just want people <laughs> to know that we recently acted out an entire episode of Friends because I made you do that with me. <laughs> yeah, we did it. <laughs> we did it. And it, it ended up being really fun. I was like, okay. <laughs> and then by the end, I was like, really, really enjoying it. So I do recommend doing that with your friends. We did that for no reason except yeah. for our pure enjoyment. It was beautiful. Yeah, we did the one where no one's ready, which is really fun to do that way because it takes place in real time. So it is very much a play. Yeah, it is. And RIP Matthew Perry, of course. Yeah, yeah I know. I could have fixed him. <laughs> I wish you would have. <laughs> Where were we? <laughs> I'm glad we brought friends in. Yeah. Um, do you have another slide for us? Should I, we get back I to? I do. I do. Right. Okay. So my so the next question, right? So you're like, okay, the alligators are real. Sometimes they're in the sewer. The story's checking out. But surely people didn't just willy nilly buy baby alligators, did they? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> But how much did they cost? One dollar. Wow, gorgeous. Chelsea, can you read that blurry print? If I you can. can. Okay. Live baby alligators, one dollar. How would you like a safe delivery, real live baby alligator for your very own? A rage for baby alligator pets has swept the country. <laughs> we have arranged at great expense to supply you with a genuine live baby alligator. 
just hatched in the deep marshlands of the South at an amazing, <laughs> amazingly low price. They're both very expensive and very cheap. <laughs> it's amazing. These... <laughs> These corking little pets, I don't know, <laughs> will be shipped to you by mail. Carefully packed, safe arrival guaranteed. Think of the fun, the thrills you will have with one of these baby alligators. Read how fascinating they are, how interesting. Study nature. <laughs> Remember, the alligator comes down to us from prehistoric days, from the age of dinosaurs. Do you want a baby alligator? You bet you do. <laughs> what boy wouldn't? <laughs> and how? Price, $1 postpaid. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. That's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> what impressions? What do you think about all this? Well, I actually have so much to say about this because we recently did an episode on sea monkeys. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, brine shrimp. So we did a lot of like looking into ads for novelty items mm -hmm. and it was so fun. And there were many, many pets shipped through the mail. There were crazy crabs, which were hermit crabs that came from the mail, made by the same man who made sea monkeys, who also funded white supremacy. So check that episode out. We won't go into that. Yeah, pretty crazy. Um, so there were also monkeys that you could get in the mail. I know about this because one of the people who sold those monkeys was Jim Jones. Okay, okay, that was a door-to-door -door monkey salesman. But where did he get them to begin with? <laughs> That's a good question. That's a good question, yeah. That is a, a fun fact, <laughs> if there ever was one, a party fact. But yeah, they would come. It's actually extremely sad, so I won't get into details. But there, I mean, I don't know how many people actually ordered these monkeys, but, you know, basically it was always in comic books. Like, I guarantee that this was probably in a comic book. This ad. was in Thrilling Westerns, a boys magazine for boys. Yes, yes. <laughs> proto, proto comic book, yeah. Um, but usually these things would be ordered without parental knowledge because you just had to like send in a coupon and uh, they would show up in a box with like a little tiny window. And, and then, you know, they'd open the box and the monkey would go absolutely bananas and um, it's actually very sad and a lot of times it would like scratch the face of the person and then a lot of times the ends of these stories that people posted from their childhoods that I'm reading on these message boards is like and the last time we saw him he was in the backyard swinging from the trees and he went into the forest so there's got to be monkeys out there the way that there are right. gators it's kind of the same Why, thing. where did those monkeys go I think that they probably did not make it yeah. in the climate, just like the gators. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not good. I'm glad we don't do this anymore. Uh, yeah. We just, now we have it so kids are scammed and spending hundreds of dollars on Fortnite with their parents' credit cards, which I Fine think by is, me. you know, yeah, it's better for the, for the animals. Um, and then you might ask, what, what else could you get from such a wonderful magazine? These are all ads from the same page. Oh. Don't point a gun at that turtle. <laughs> Let's see. Do you want to read pet turtles or pistol? Why don't I continue with the biological Okay, pets? great. Okay. 
real live pet turtles, 25 cents. What a bargain. So a turtle is a quarter of an alligator. <laughs> this is our math class. Um, if you want a fascinating and interesting little pet, just risk 25 cents. <laughs> And we will send you a real live pet turtle by mail post paid. Thousands sold at Chicago World's Fair. I swear everything happens at the Chicago World's Fair. That's a different story. Um, no trouble at all to keep. Just give it a little lettuce or cabbage or let it seek its own food. Doesn't seem great. It's like Ritz crackers. Um, Extremely gentle, easily kept, and live for years and years. Need less attention than any other pet. <laughs> Get one or more. Study their habits. You will find them extremely interesting. Price, 25 cents. Special turtle food, 10 cents a package. Ooh. What I love about these ads is I feel like some guy asked like a junior employee for like a bunch of ideas for the turtle copy and then just used all of the ideas. <laughs> It was a really uh, great job, I feel like, was the copy for novelty items. But I do want to share a turtle-related oh, yeah. anecdote very quickly. Um, I had a turtle growing up named Barney, and when I was a kid, I taught this turtle to stand on his hind legs using mealworms that were dangled above him, and he would get up. Box turtle. It sounds impossible, but I promise it happened. And um, But this turtle learned how to escape his terrarium because he would, <laughs> he would stick his claws into the mesh of the terrarium and then stand up the way that I taught him, and then the terrarium would catch, and then it would have enough of a space for him to get out, and I don't know how he took this risk for the first time, but he barrel rolled into a box of stuffed animals that was below the terrarium, like literally off the table. And then we just like find him under the fridge like two days later. And he did this a lot. And then my friends ended up taking him because my mom was like, this turtle is too stinky. And then did the same thing at their house and escaped and was never seen again. And I like to think he's still out there though because they live to be like 80. Wow. Yeah. I think there's a place where all the, the runaway pets have gone to live together without us. Is it heaven? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a farm. Yeah. A farm somewhere. It's a beautiful farm. Uh -huh. Let's see. So we've also got blank cartridge pistol. I just if can't you don't believe how much that gun is pointing at that turtle. <laughs> That's all I can see. I made this PowerPoint in a rush. <laughs> it's all right. I, I wouldn't want it any other way. <laughs> It's unclear to me whether this thing actually fires blanks, which like you can kill people by doing that. Um, you don't have to worry about it. Uh, three new models now out, 25 cents, 50 cents, and one dollar. Wow, so you could get, if you had $2, you could buy two guns, or a gun and a gator, or a, <laughs> or a gator and four turtles. <laughs> Well made and effective, modeled on pattern of latest type of revolver, appearance alone enough to scare a burglar, takes 22 cal, oh my god it does, takes 22 cal blank cartridges obtainable everywhere, good protection against burglars, tramps, dogs. <laughs> Have it lying around without the danger attached to other revolvers, fine for 4th of July, New Year's, for stage works, starting pistol, etc. So uh, it sells itself, really. It really does. And I would have bought that. 
when I was a young boy. Yeah, yeah, in, in the 30s, ideally, uh -huh. when the prices are low. And then, and this is the company that's making them Racine, Wisconsin. Good for them. And Johnson Smith was like the novelty yeah. catalog. Oh, yeah. Nice. It was the place to be. They're doing quite well in the turtle and gun you know, field. <laughs> They've cornered the market. Two markets millennials have also <laughs> killed. <laughs> and then here's another ad that made me think of an adventure we recently had together. Oh, Can you yeah. read us that one? Yeah. I think you okay, may. This you is want, the biggest okay. boys on the whole okay. page. The ads, they're like, boys, 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 boys. 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 <laughs> Boys, throw your voice into a trunk, under the bed, or anywhere. <laughs> Lots of fun fooling teacher, policemen, or friends. That was back when you were allowed to fool a policeman. <laughs> and then you just got on your skateboard and jumped over a garbage truck and you were free. Went home to your alligator. <laughs> um, the ventrilio, a little instrument, fits in the mouth out of sight, used with above for bird calls, etc. Anyone can use it, except I feel like it's specifically for boys. <laughs> <laughs> Never fails. <laughs> yep. mm -hmm. Never say that gendered marketing is a recent phenomenon. Yeah. And, uh... In conclusion, <laughs> uh, are there alligators in the sewers? Yes. Are they doing well? No. <laughs> Is the thing we think we're most afraid of often the thing that needs our help? Yeah. And that, I mean, that that is kind of the definition of an urban legend or a moral panic or really a conspiracy theory, what you just said. The thing we're most scared of is often the thing that needs our help. I love that. I really like that. So I guess, is it an urban legend? Because it doesn't sound like an urban legend. I feel like this goes in like the yellow light category yeah. of Snopes.com, which is how I still evaluate yeah. these things. <laughs> Where it's like mixed, kinda, mm -hmm. basically, in a way, no, but in a way, yes. And that's what I love about these stories. And really, even the satanic panic, right? The surface narrative is children are being abused and it's not being noticed because it's hiding in plain sight. And you're like, yeah, that is true. It's just yeah. not daycare provider lesbian Satanists that are doing it. Yeah. It's yep. essentially everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's a, a scarier truth. And one of the functions of folklore and this actually differs by culture there are cultures where folklore is like if thing a happens then outcome b will happen the end and in america because we're stupid and hopeful and like to scare each other um, but also be hopeful and optimistic about our own ability to outsmart situations we do if thing a happens then thing b will happen unless you do thing c which is to call the police when you see someone who uh, isn't white at a craft store. It's got to be part of a gang initiation. <laughs> you know, and so we, these stories give us a feeling of control and it's fair to need a feeling of control. And it's the, I think the sort of spread of this folklore is also a way of recognizing the fact that perhaps people feel more out of control than ever. And perhaps there's a greater need, not than ever, but then, you know, for a little while to as the real enemy becomes more and more clear to find increasingly bananas, to use your earlier phrasing, imaginary things to be afraid of. 
Yeah, I think you put it really well. And uh, I don't think these these things are never going to go away. I think that they're a part of just like the human condition. And we've been writing myths from like the beginning of time when we could start writing on cave walls. You know, we've been telling myths and we've been telling stories and we've been telling metaphors, which I think is really nice as a student of poetry. Um, <laughs> and I do think that, you know, I think that there is a poetry to urban legends and that they are these metaphors like we've talked about. And um, you can read them the way that you read a poem and you can trace them and you can sort of find the heart of what they really mean. And the nice thing too is that you actually never can, you know? So it's like this way you get to, like a poem or something, you can read these stories again and again. You can read the same story happening in 1930 and you could say, what was happening in 1930 and why would that historical moment produce this type of untrue story? Why was it spreading? Because that's the other thing is like, anyone can make up a ridiculous story, but what is important is that people resonate enough with that story that it becomes like embedded in our culture. And that's like a really interesting thing that you can kind of become literate in. And I think it can be really important. And uh, yeah, you just get to, I think it's just folklore is fantastic in that way. And you can mean so many different things. It resonates in different ways in different time periods. And you can really tell a little bit about what people are thinking, feeling, experiencing, especially what they're afraid of based on the stories that we tell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> we figured it out. <laughs> this was an American Hysteria You're Wrong About mashup. If you want to get more of our show, American Hysteria, you can head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria or subscribe on Apple Plus, and you'll get access to Hysteria Home Companion, a talk show that producer Miranda and I do where we tell you stories cut from the episodes or stories we think that you'd like. This week, our associate producer, Riley Swadelius-Smith, came on the show to tell us the story of how news of the Titanic's sinking actually reached the shores while the tragedy unfolded. We've got a whole bunch of back episodes as well that I think that you'll really enjoy. So again, just head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria or subscribe on Apple Plus. You'll also get ad-free episodes. American Hysteria is produced and edited by Miranda Zickler. Thanks as always for listening and I hope you have a great week. Yeah.